If you're a, a guest with us today, you're catching us in the midst of a, a sermon series for the uh, church season of Lent, and it's a series titled In His Own Words, as you can see. Um, and as we, as we think about this, we're, we're remembering back to something uh, I shared in the first message of this series about uh, a field trip on which Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And the city of Caesarea Philippi represented kind of every spiritual option available to people back in that day. There were temples to the Greek gods, to Caesar, to all sorts of other uh, uh, spiritual uh, options. And Jesus took his disciples there and asked, who do people say I am? And the disciples answered. And then Jesus turned to them and said, but what about you? You know, who, who do you say I am? And it's, it's a poignant question uh, posed on the backdrop of all of those other choices. Seemingly, Jesus was asking, what, what do you think is really going on here? Am, am I different? Am I unique? Do you believe that this is really from God? Or am I just one of the many that you can pick to put on your personal spiritual plate? You know, and it's, it's a compelling question. It's as relevant today as it was when Jesus posed it. And in many ways, uh, the backdrop is very similar. All sorts of options. And we as human beings often take the tack of, well, I'll take some of this and some of that and just put it on my plate and do my thing. And Jesus is really challenging that, I think. So the question, who am I? from Jesus, as relevant today as it was when he asked it, before we uh, maybe assume we know or just simply accept what other people say, we should look at what Jesus said himself. So this series is focused on the I am statements of Jesus, uh, each of which reveals a different aspect of Jesus' identity and helps us answer with certainty the question Jesus posed, who do you say I am? So let's listen to today's scripture. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. 
I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Naomi. You are a wonderful reader. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So I'm not sure how you showed up this morning, in what state of mind, or what the week was like, or, but let's just time out for a second. Slow down from our hurry, from our distraction, and listen to what Jesus said about himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, Jesus, as the bread of life, is the one who satisfies our deepest hunger and quenches our deepest thirst. If Jesus is the bread of life, then Jesus is all we need. Uh, The Hebrew word for bread is lachem, And you have to do the, it's lachem. Very interestingly, the Hebrew word for war is built on the Hebrew word for bread. They share the same root. So much so that in Hebrew, the meaning of the word for war is literally breading meaning the struggle for bread or the struggle for the resources we feel we need for life. In a world where resources are scarce, most wars are struggles for resources, for bread, for the bread we think we need to live. And there's a whole set of assumptions that goes with this, underlying assumptions. Assumption number one, we live in a world where resources are scarce, I was a business major at Miami of Ohio, and I still remember Economics 101, very basic introduction. What is economics? Economics is the study of the allocation of scarce resources, an assumption of scarcity. Um, Might be referred to as a scarcity mentality, and a scarcity mentality has the potential to breed fear as to where our bread will come from. Where will we get the stuff we think we need for living, that's assumption number one. Assumption number two, to get resources, to get the bread we need, we must earn them or take them. Those are the only two ways to ensure that we have the resources we need. Generate them ourselves, earn them, make them somehow, or take them from somebody who has them. And with that background, it's rather clear, right, when Jesus shows up and says, I am the bread of life, he's calling into question all of those assumptions, challenging them, 
really. Um, more Hebrew. You know, um, Betshan. Bet, in Hebrew, if you see the, the word B-E-T-H, it looks like the woman's name, Beth, right? It's actually pronounced bait, like fishing bait, and it means house of. So think about Beth Lahem. Beit Lahem, house of bread. The prophecy from long ago is that a savior for the entire world would emerge out of the house of bread. That's where he would be born. And we know he was, and he went on to be the bread of life. You see God working in there? See, evidently, to get what we need most, we don't have to earn it or take it away from somebody else. According to the Bible, God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. Just think about the Old Testament. If, if you know a little bit about the Bible, there's a story of Moses before a burning bush, and he was intrigued because he said, I must go see this bush that burns and is not consumed, breaking all the rules. Uh, or in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000. It's the, it's the story we did in K-Quest, our, our uh, thing for elementary age boys on Wednesday night. This was the story we did last week. The loaves and fishes were multiplied uh, to feed everyone. With Jesus, not enough becomes more than enough. See, if Jesus is the bread of life, then Jesus is all we need. If you've been around this church a little bit, you've, you've probably uh, heard the phrase we often use at the benediction, we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. Um, let me give you the quick history of that thing. That actually was a phrase that emerged one time when I was doing devotions and writing in my journal. Uh, I, was, I was quite sad. I was 40 when Crystal and I got married. I had wanted to be married for years. I was journaling on this kind of processing, Lord, I really want to be married. I really want a family. There's some sadness as I was writing this. Uh, now, since I lived to the age of 40, being single in the church, I'm going to be careful to say, you don't have to be married to be complete. The church should never communicate that message to single people. Our community should be so deep and so rich that it welcomes everyone into, into family, the family of God, right? There's a whole biblical theology around uh, singleness, and that's, that's very clear. So we are made complete in Jesus, not in any human relationship we might pursue. So writing in my journal, ups, downs, didn't feel called to be single, wondering why I wasn't married. I was an associate pastor at a church in Des Moines, Iowa at the time on summer vacation back here to the resort I used to manage up in northern Michigan. I was doing devotions one morning, sitting at a picnic table overlooking Grand Traverse Bay in Elk Rapids. East Bay is the best bay. I'd read some scripture, I was praying and journaling, and, and right out of my sadness, this line flowed onto the pages of my journal. I live in a world where a resurrection has happened, and for me, that is more than enough. I live in a world where a resurrection has happened, and for me, that's more than enough. 
Now, if you're less familiar with the Bible, you, you might not have heard of the Psalms of Lament. In the book of Psalms in scripture, there are 150 different Psalms and there are different categories of them. And the Psalms of Lament, pretty obviously named, right? They're laments. They're people crying out to God about something that's gone terribly wrong in their life or God, my life is a mess. Where are you? When will you show up to help? There's normally a long laundry list of, of stuff that's going wrong and the person is wondering where God is because life is hard and it sure feels like God is absent. And almost always, out of, out of this whole psalm that's, uh, Lord, I, where are you? Why won't you fix this? Life is super hard and it, and it just seems like the ship is going down. Often there's a one-liner at the end that's something like, and yet I will hope in the Lord. And it's just that quick turn, right? You're like, oh, okay. Uh, my time at the picnic table when that little phrase came out was for me an experiential version of a psalm of lament. It was sad, 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 sad. I live in a world where a resurrection has happened. And for me, that's more than enough. And yet, I will hope in the Lord. Right? And it, and it, it changed me. I, I hope you see what happened there. Right? In, in that moment at the picnic table in Elk Rapids, Jesus became for me the bread of life with regard to that area of my life. Now, I still wanted to be married, still experienced sadness, but I was satisfied. God really moved in there. And it changed the way I thought about marriage. No longer would I get married because there was a void in me and I needed to. I'd get married because I, I loved a woman and felt called to and wanted to. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. Not just a theoretical idea floating out there. Bread of life for our real lives. And if Jesus is the bread of life, then Jesus is all we need. And, and I submit to you that when we accept this and live by it, we become healthier people for the very reason that our deepest needs are appropriately directed. Right? If we're looking for other people or things to satisfy our deepest needs, not only will we be sorely and repeatedly disappointed, we'll become lesser people trying either to earn more of what we think we need or to take it from someone. It's relational breading. The struggle for what we need, but this time it's happening on the relational level. And that always creates pain and emotional and relational train wrecks, like off the rails and the train crumples up. That's not the answer. If Jesus is the bread of life, then Jesus really is all we need. There, there's another side to the statement Jesus made, I'm, I'm the bread of life. If you translate it literally, it would read like this. I myself, I am the bread of the life. I am the bread of the life. Well, that's kind of interesting. There's two definite articles, and there are two definite articles, articles in the Greek. Jesus said, I am the bread of the life. The first part, the bread, I mean, we just kind of covered that. There's no other real bread in this life. If Jesus is the bread of life, then Jesus is all we need. Now, what about the second part? I'm the bread of the life. Check this out. In, in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul gives this instruction. Command those who are rich in this present world 
not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What an interesting phrase. That they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Um, Evidently, there's a kind of life masquerading around the world as real life but in the end turns out to be no life at all. And there's a way to take hold of the life that is truly life. See, Jesus' words confirm that. He said, I am the bread of the life. Meaning real life is right here with me, Jesus speaking now. Real life is right here with me right now. I'm the answer to your deepest longings and and needs and desires. There's another story in the Bible that that takes a different angle on this same idea. It comes soon after the passage we just read this morning. Uh, Jesus said this in, in what we read today. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then a bit later we read this. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Like, what do you mean the bread is your flesh? That's weird. Is this some kind of cannibal cult? And what are we actually talking about here? Eat your flesh? What? And a lot of people left. And after a lot of people left, Jesus looked at the 12 and asked this, you do not want to leave too, do you? To which Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's almost like Peter was saying this. Despite all our confusion, all of our uncertainty, all our doubts, all our pain, we know, Jesus, that you're the only real show in town. We know that you're from God and that every other spiritual option to which we might turn is of human origin. We're not going to leave you, Jesus, for the very simple reason that there is no one else to whom we can turn. Jesus is the bread of the life and and, and, uh, the fullness of that life God offers us is available nowhere else. One commentator put it this way. This claim, I am the bread of life, assumes the world can never satisfy us. Everything the world has to offer is unsatisfying, alienating, or better, makes one restless. Human beings are afflicted with dissatisfaction, boredom, anxiety, and care. We're unable to find that authentic rest, that true peace, that goal for which it is rewarding to live and strive. You know, the bread of the life. There isn't that same fullness of, of true life available anywhere else. If Jesus is the bread of life, Jesus is all we need. And and let's not miss that part about not being able to find it on our own. Did you catch that in, in the passage we read? I think that's what Jesus meant when he said this, all whom the Father gives me will come. According to the Bible, people in their own strength don't find their way back to God. God finds us. And we're completely dependent on God finding us. 
Now look at this from Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Now biblically speaking, before God finds us, we're dead. Not not hindered or disabled or under self-actualized or or dead. Completely unable to do anything before God finds us. God is the first mover in our journey of faith, right? God pursues us. God draws us to himself. God gives us to Jesus. Now I get that's not the way we experience the journey of coming to faith. At At least it's not the way I experienced it. So if you're here this morning and and you feel like you're exploring the Christian faith, this this is not some kind of weird fatalistic condemnation, right? Like you're out of luck unless God does something magical and picks your number. The good news is that God wants all of us to come back to him by his grace and through faith in Jesus. And he has chosen us to do this. Look at this. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. So so what does it mean to be completely dependent on God to find us? All this means is that when a person comes to faith in Jesus and trusting themselves to Christ, seeking to follow him, when that happens, the person is made new on, on the inside. You have new sensitivities to what's going on spiritually. And one of the things that happens is that When you look back on your life, you now realize that the whole time you thought you were pursuing God, what was actually going on was that you were responding to God's pursuit of you. The Lord was the first mover. And that, friends, is the beauty of the gospel. I mean, it says that God does not want to live without any of us. He wants everybody to come back. Right? It means that when we're far off, when we don't want to have anything to do with God, when we're either knowingly or unknowingly ignoring God, God is pursuing us. That makes me think of that that, uh, famous poem by Francis Thompson. Maybe you know it, The Hound of Heaven. The whole picture is that God is like the hound of heaven and, and the whole time Thompson was kind of trying to flee from him, the hound kept pursuing him, had the scent, was on his trail. Just kept coming. God's pursuit of us before we want anything to do with him is a very biblical idea. Look at this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right at our point of greatest need and at the place of our deepest inability to do anything for ourselves. God made that sacrifice for us and for the world, right? This this is the gospel. God acted on our behalf through the life, the atoning death, the resurrection of Jesus. We understand these to be real world events that actually happened. They are now pinned to the timeline of history, never to be undone by anyone ever. That's the claim, When we were far off, God pursued us. And maybe more importantly, when we are far off, God pursues us. And the picture in the Bible is that 
that when he finds us, he celebrates, throws a huge party. That's what Luke 15 is all about, the story of the prodigal son. Said the father of the son who had returned, let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So if we're completely dependent on God, do we have any part to play in coming back to God or or do we just hang out and wait for something to happen? What's our part? Jesus made that clear as well in what he said in our passage today. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Uh, Whoever comes, whoever believes. Now, ancient Greek has more verb tenses than modern English, so sometimes there are additional layers of meaning in the verbs. This is one of those times. The meaning of what Jesus said is not, whoever comes to me once will never go hungry, and whoever comes to me once will never be thirsty. It means, whoever comes to me and continues coming to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me and continues believing in me will never be thirsty. The verbs have... Uh, this reference to something that has happened and continues to happen. It's not just past tense. It happened in the past, but it's continuing to happen in the present. So what's our part? I mean, our part is this. We respond to God's pursuit of us by coming continually to Jesus and by trusting continually in Jesus. Now, I get, I get that if you're exploring faith in Jesus, this might sound trite and most unsatisfying. Uh, I don't know if you can believe this, but I've been there. I get that you might have either intellectual or emotional barriers to faith that seem insurmountable to you right now, like a grand canyon of a leap. I get that. And at the same time, this is what Jesus said. Come to me and trust me. And we all know this. Somewhere, sometime, you must decide whom you will trust. You can't get away from it. You have to make a call. You are trusting someone. And and I submit that if you're not trusting Jesus right now, it it is a fair question to ask, why not? Will you make a case against Jesus on the tapestry of world history of everything that has happened, of his profound demonstration of self-giving love that invites all people everywhere to come home to God? Like, if you're not going to trust that person, who are you going to trust and why? I mean, that is a fair question. I grappled with it. But to be honest, my struggle wasn't with Jesus. It was with me. It was with my pride and my desire to say, no, I, I got this. I'm good. I'm good. I was the problem. Maybe you can relate to that. I I take coming to Jesus to mean 
transferring our trust to Christ from whatever it is that we've been trusting in. My favorite example is over here, so I'm gonna go this way. I'll try not to tip the organ over like last time. We unbolted it from the floor. Right now, I'm trusting in my feet, I got it. Trust is a transfer of the weight of your life, right? And it's, it's leaning, trusting your whole self to where if somebody removed the organ right now, I'm going down, right? That's trust. And you can do that with your life, with your whole being. And it honestly is a choice. You gotta let it go and direct your trust. You have to choose whom to trust. I take that trusting Jesus to mean moving our, our reliance, our allegiance, the basis of our ultimate security in, in this life from whatever it is that we have been trusting to Christ. And then diving into what he said and allowing his words to, to shape our, our hearts, right? Come and continue coming to Jesus. Turn toward him, not away from him. Seek to move forward with him, not away from him. Trust and continue trusting. Place your reliance and continue placing your reliance upon him. And when we do this, we experience a new reality. We, we experience the truth of this image that Jesus used to describe himself. We will know and taste the satisfying nourishment of the bread of life where there's this settledness in you because you know that everything you need is provided. If Jesus is the bread of life, truly, Jesus is all we need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you that you've given us such a tangible image. The bread of life, the, the bread of the life. Thank you that you actually do that for us. That you, that you satisfy our hunger. That you quench our thirst through who you are and what you've done for us. We, we bless you, O oh God, for this. And now as we turn to the table that you left us with the bread and the cup, we hold this image that you gave us in our minds and our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.